This is going to disrupt this nation, and we are not going to stand for it. Speaker Kevin McCarthy says House Republicans are ready to defend former President Trump following his latest indictment. For Saturday, June 10th, this is All Things Considered. I'm Susan Davis. Are you happy being childless? LifeKit has some tips on what to say to those who want to know why you don't want kids. Well, I'm living proof that not every woman wants a child. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken traveled to Saudi Arabia and met with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. It's the clearest signal yet that the Biden administration is taking a softer approach after President Biden threatened to reevaluate U.S.-Saudi relations last fall. MBS is clearly engaging in these modernization efforts in order to not look like a brutal dictator. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former President Donald Trump is making his first public appearances today since his 37-count indictment on federal charges that was unsealed yesterday. He appeared at a Republican convention in Georgia and will be in North Carolina tonight. Special Counsel Jack Smith says Trump personally packed boxes retrieved from his Florida estate and bragged about having secret materials. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has more. Special counsel Jack Smith said he wanted a speedy trial in Florida where the case will now move. He also emphasized that no one is above the law. The 37 charges against Trump include willful retention of national defense information, conspiracy to obstruct justice, and false statements. The indictment includes damning evidence against Trump and states two instances where Trump showed classified documents to people who did not have any kind of security clearance to view them. One of those times Trump showed classified documents was to a writer and admitted it was, quote, highly confidential. Trump is expected to be at the courthouse in Miami on Tuesday afternoon. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Washington. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky today confirmed that his country's long-awaited offensive is underway against Russian troops. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the Ukrainian leader also took a jab at his Russian counterpart, Vladimir Putin. President Zelensky said, quote, counteroffensive and defensive actions are taking place in Ukraine. At what stage, I will not say in detail. He spoke at a news conference with visiting Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Ukraine's offensive has been coming into focus in recent days with ground attacks against the Russians in three separate areas in the south and east of the country. But until Zelensky's remarks, Ukrainian leaders had declined to say whether the operation had begun. Meanwhile, Putin said Russian forces have beaten back the Ukrainians. Zelensky responded, quote, I'm in daily contact with our commanders. Everyone is positive, so pass it on to Putin. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kiev. The man known as the Unabomber has died in a federal prison in North Carolina. Sasha Cordner from member station WUNC has more. Ted Kaczynski was serving four life sentences for mailing or hand-delivering bombs over a 17-year period that ended in the mid-1990s, killing three people and injuring nearly two dozen others. According to Federal Bureau of Prison spokesperson Christy Brashears, he was found unresponsive in his cell early Saturday morning. Kaczynski had been at the Federal Prison Medical Center in Butner at the time. He was then transferred to a local hospital where he was later pronounced dead. He was 81. The cause of death is still unknown. For NPR News, I'm Sasha Cordner in Chapel Hill. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Pride festivals on Boston Common and City Hall Plaza will be open for another hour. They're part of the city celebration of the LGBTQ plus community. Earlier today, the Boston Pride Parade made its way through Back Bay in the South End to Boston Common. Huge crowds lined the route. WBUR's Walter Wuthman reported from just outside the common. It's making its way through hundreds of thousands of people before it's going to end with a festival. Thousands of people just in every single color, so excited. People are just so happy to be out here celebrating Pride for the first time in three years. Massachusetts' first openly gay governor, Maura Healey, was among the political leaders marching. Speaking over the cheering crowd, Healey said her administration is committed to equality. We'll do everything we can to protect the LGBTQ plus community. And I feel gratitude. You know, so many of these people, they put us on their backs. They helped us get to where we are. And I'm grateful to so many people who went before me. This is the biggest pride parade in New England and the first since 2019. Organizers say 10,000 marchers signed up and the focus was on social justice and inclusion. A Boston police officer is in stable condition after being shot last night in Roxbury. Police do have a suspect in custody. Police Commissioner Michael Cox says the officer was shot while responding to a robbery and is recovering at Boston Medical Center. Cox says two other officers who responded are recovering from injuries but not from gunfire. Getting between Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard will be a bit trickier tomorrow. The Steamship Authority is canceling morning ferries between Woods Hole and Vineyard Haven because it does not have enough crew members. Two morning ferries between Hyannis and Nantucket are also being canceled. Red Sox play the Yankees in the Bronx tonight. Revolution hosts Miami at Gillette tonight. Scattered showers tonight, mid-50s, mostly sunny tomorrow. Isolated showers, mid-70s, a chance of showers on Monday near 80, 61 degrees at 506. WBUR supporters include Smart Mouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. Smart Mouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers, or at smartmouth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Susan Davis. The historic federal indictment of former President Trump is escalating pressure on his allies in Congress to ramp up their own probes into the Justice Department and President Biden. Speaker Kevin McCarthy says Republicans will use every tool at their disposal to fight back against Trump's criminal charges. Here's McCarthy speaking with Fox News Digital. This is going to disrupt this nation because it goes to the core of equal justice for all, which is not being seen today, and we are not going to stand for it. This also comes after a tough week for House Republicans, who were paralyzed by party infighting that forced McCarthy to adjourn without advancing any legislation. Joining us now is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales. Hello, Claudia. Hey, Sue. So let's start with Speaker McCarthy. What exactly are House Republicans pledging to do here in light of Trump's indictment? Well, McCarthy, like members of the conservative House Freedom Caucus, have been quick to publicly come to the former president's aid and say they're going to take whatever steps necessary to defend him. That involves an effort that's already been underway by House Republicans to discredit the Justice Department and this criminal federal investigation 
against Trump, while also ramping up their own probes into President Biden, his administration, and his family. The Republican-led House Judiciary Committee, which is led by a member of the Freedom Caucus, this is Jim Jordan of Ohio, is several months into these investigations. And then simultaneously, the House Oversight Panel, which is led by Kentucky Republican James Comer, has also double-teamed these efforts. McCarthy has said they'll get to the bottom of this investigation into Trump, saying, quote, House Republicans will hold this brazen weaponization of power accountable. But we should note this indictment brought against the former president is pretty detailed and paints a pretty clear picture of alleged wrongdoing. And special counsel Jack Smith said yesterday in his remarks that the Justice Department investigators involved have adhered to the highest ethical standards. Wasn't McCarthy himself just facing a revolt by members of the very same Freedom Caucus? Is the indictment sort of bringing the caucus together again? Yeah, it could. In some ways, they're already speaking the same language. They're forcefully defending Trump, marking the most engaged segment of the congressional membership, readily attacking the Justice Department and Biden in light of these new criminal charges. And we can't forget, McCarthy was elected speaker after 15 rounds where Trump played a big role. So that said, before this, we saw the House adjourned several days early this past week. They were paralyzed by members of the House Freedom Caucus looking to extract new agreements from McCarthy as a result of his deal with President Biden to lift the debt ceiling. So it remains to be seen if they can put their differences aside to get on the same page when they get back Monday night. But it will undoubtedly involve some negotiations to see if they can and how fast they can get there. And that will dictate what next steps House Republicans take together with these ongoing probes and whether they'll even expand talk of impeaching members of Biden's administration or even Biden himself. How much real momentum, though, is there behind trying to impeach the president? Well, that would take an enormous amount of agreement among House Republican members, and that seems very far-fetched right now, especially after this past week. But there's some still pushing for this. That includes Georgia's Marjorie Taylor Greene. And after news of the Trump indictment broke, she tweeted that Republicans need to stop fighting each other, alluding to this floor chaos we saw this past week, and said instead they should follow Democrats' lead of working together and that Republicans should unite. You've talked a lot about House Republicans, but haven't heard much from Senate Republicans following the indictment. Right. For example, we haven't heard from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell or his number two Republican whip John Thune. And we know there is no love lost there when it comes to Trump. And while some Senate Republicans have come to Trump's defense, there's a pretty long list of moderates who haven't commented at all, with just a few exceptions to that but we'll be watching closely when the Senate returns Monday night to see if some of the Senate Republicans who have yet to address Trump's federal indictment finally will. NPR's Claudia Gersales, thank you. Thank you. To Poland now, where last Sunday an estimated half a million people filled the streets of the capital, Warsaw. It was one of the largest protests of its kind in recent memory. <laughs> It was the anniversary of Poland's first elections 34 years ago, and people took to the streets to protest their current government's attempt to curb that democracy. Poland's right-wing ruling party had just passed a law that will ban anyone from public office if suspected of being subject to Russian influence. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Warsaw. 
Poland's ruling party says the country's new law is necessary now that Russia has invaded Ukraine. In order to guarantee the security of our country, this law is crucial to understand how Russia has penetrated our political process. Yaroslav Krajewski is a member of parliament. He represents the ruling Law and Justice Party, which came up with this law. Within days of its passing, both the United States and the European Union expressed serious concerns about it. And so do many Poles. They see this law as a tool to remove popular opposition candidates like former Prime Minister Donald Tusk, who addressed the crowds alongside Poland's first democratically elected president after communist rule, Lech Wałęsa. Tusk said Poles then and now did not and will not let themselves be intimidated. Poland's popular television news channel TVP, now effectively run by the state, called the event a march of hate. And ruling party politician Korejewski insists the new law has nothing to do with removing Tusk and his civic platform party from the upcoming national election in October. But when he's asked who should be investigated for Russian influence, this is the first person he mentions. It's interesting that under Donald Tusk as prime minister, there was a plan to have the Polish Secret Service trained together with Russian special forces. And his own minister of foreign affairs wanted Russia to join NATO, which sounds insane today. Kuryevsky says the Russian influence law will establish a commission of nine members, five from the ruling party, who will gather information on Russian influence, find out who is subject to it, and then hold public hearings. If they're guilty, the accused would be banned from holding an office that manages public funds. From the very beginning till the very end, it is unconstitutional. Retired Judge Miroslav Wyszykowski knows something about Poland's constitution. He helped write it. And I proposed then Article 1. Poland is a democratic state ruled by law. How was the reaction of the people around me? New concept, interesting, sexy, full of potential, they accept it. Vyjokovsky says public hearings to root out Russian influence remind him of a certain period of American history. The thing that the American people can do is to be vigilant day and night to make sure they don't have communists teaching the sons and daughters of America. Former U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy's hearings in the 1950s to root out communists in American society comes to Vyjavkovsky's mind. He says the very idea of a commission where the accused is publicly interrogated by a state-controlled body on vaguely defined grounds also reminds him of something, ironically, that Russia would do. As one of the authors of Poland's constitution, Vyjavkovsky says he's deeply sad by the slow death of it under the ruling Law and Justice Party. I'm feeling like one of the hundreds of mothers and fathers of this constitutional system in Poland. And I'm feeling that my child is dying. On the streets of Poland's capital, everyone we stop to interview is also angry about the Russian influence law, including Marcel Machovkowski. He says if the ruling party wants to look for Russian influence in Poland, they'll have to accuse everyone over the age of 40, because the country was entirely under Russian influence when it was behind the Iron Curtain up until 1989. He says the law makes no sense, and he says far more Poles will likely protest if the hearings go forward. Poland's government says the first report from the Russian Influence Commission will be published September 17th, one month before the country's national election. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Warsaw.
The end of a school year is a significant milestone for lots of people. And for Mary Nettleton, a beloved reading tutor in a tiny Colorado mountain town, it marks 25 years of helping kids dig into books. Laura Palmasano with member station KVNF says Miss Mary hasn't let challenges stand in her way. Once a week since the late 1990s, Mary Nettleton has volunteered at the Lake City Community School. She reads with fourth and fifth graders in this tiny school of just over 80 students. One o'clock on Friday afternoon is I'm at school and I'm always disappointed if they have a field trip. Trip Horn is a teacher here. They actually kind of fight over who gets to read with Miss Mary on Friday. So I pick three students every week, but they, they love her. I think that she's very positive and gives great feedback. It's a great thing for our class. Fourth grader Walker Stark is reading with Miss Mary today. Uh, it's just fun to read to someone. I don't know. I just usually, usually read by myself. <laughs> it's helpful, really helpful. He's reading to Miss Mary about a museum. Most visited art gallery, the, the Louvre Museum. Okay, you want to look at that word? What museum? The Louvre. Okay, Louvre. It's French. Oh, yeah. I correct things that I need to. I explain words. We work on, if the student needs it, fluency and uh, expression and stopping at periods and commas. Miss Mary, who's 83, is blind, but she doesn't need to see what the children are reading in order to help them. If they're uncomfortable about their reading and are a little embarrassed, it's a safe place. I'm not judging. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a parent. I'm not a friend. I'm just a grandmother who likes to listen to children read. According to the economist, the economist, the economist, school just let out for the summer, but Miss Mary is already looking forward to reading with students this fall, like fourth grader Elsa Martin. Chapter three says, are you at the end of a chapter? Yeah. Okay, well that's always a good stopping point, is at the end of a chapter. For NPR News, I'm Laura Palmisano in Lake City, Colorado. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust, committed to conserving and promoting New England's native plants to ensure healthy, biologically diverse landscapes. More at nativeplanttrust.org and Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and Associated Sweepstakes Entities are not eligible for any contests or prizes. WBUR supporters include New Art Center in Newton, with full-day summer art camps for 1st through 12th graders. More information at newartcenter.org. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today confirmed that his country's counteroffensive against the Russian invasion is underway to retake territory now being controlled by Russian troops. He says top commanders are in a positive mood but wouldn't provide details on the operation. Meanwhile, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made an unannounced visit to Kyiv, where he announced Canada is sending another $375 million in military aid to that country.
And today marks the 60th anniversary of the Equal Pay Act. The law was designed to protect people against pay discrimination, including on the basis of sex. But wages between men and women remain far from equal. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. And from Linda Mood Bell Learning Centers, instruction for students to catch up or get ahead. Live online or in-person summer programs for reading, comprehension, and math. LindaMoodBell.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Susan Davis. This week, the Supreme Court handed down a surprise 5-4 decision in an Alabama voting rights case. Two conservative justices, John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, joined the court's three liberal justices to affirm a lower court decision that said Alabama's Republican-drawn congressional map violated black voters' rights, which are protected by the Voting Rights Act. It could have far-reaching impacts across the Deep South and on the 2024 elections, where control of the U.S. House is at stake. To talk more about what this decision means for congressional elections, we're joined now by David Wasserman, an election analyst with the nonpartisan Cook Political Report. Welcome. Thanks a lot. Considering the conservative supermajority of the court, how surprising was the decision to folks like yourself who closely watch these redistricting cases? I can't say I'm shocked because the initial federal court ruling that struck down Alabama's congressional map before the Supreme Court put a stay on it was decided by, in part, two Trump appointees. And so there was some support from conservative members of the judiciary for a more proportional map that reflected Alabama's black population. Currently, Alabama, of course, has six Republican seats that are heavily white and one hyper-minority district, the seventh district held by Democrat Terry Sewell, And this ruling will unpack that district. Is the impact then that it's likely that it will result in two districts in Alabama where uh, a black lawmaker could win? Exactly. And what the court said in this narrow majority ruling was that the Voting Rights Act interpretation that has been Supreme Court precedent for decades supports the plaintiff's claim that it's possible to draw a reasonably compact set of two black majority districts in the state. The court said, you know, because they are reasonably configured, then they should be drawn. At issue, as you noted, in Alabama was that 27 percent of the state is black and only one of those seven districts for the U.S. House was considered a reliably safe district in terms of electing a black lawmaker. But that is a reality in many other states with significant black populations as well, isn't it? Well, it's true in several other states. In Louisiana, it's also possible to draw an additional black majority seat versus the current plan, which features five heavily Republican white districts and one uh, majority black district that snakes from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. We could see basically a carbon copy of 
what's next in Alabama play out in Louisiana, where a second district is mandated by federal courts. And we almost never see seats flip from solid Republican to solid Democrat or vice versa overnight. This is a really rare case where that could happen. And that's a game changer when you consider that the margin in the House right now is so thin. Are there other states that you think could be impacted by this decision? Yes. We're also watching litigation over racial redistricting in Georgia and South Carolina, and perhaps to a lesser extent, Texas. Those states are a bit murkier because, for example, in South Carolina, it's not really possible to draw two black majority districts without some pretty acrobatic cartography. Uh, and courts could decide that it's simply too ugly or too non-compact to do that there. In Georgia, it might be possible to draw a fourth black majority district in metro Atlanta. And in Texas, it's really hard to draw districts that are a majority of one racial minority group in some places because of how diverse suburbs of Houston and Dallas are and how many different racial and ethnic groups live in those communities. If states are forced to redraw their districts, do you anticipate that that's going to happen in time for the 2024 elections? Yes, it's clear as the result of the Supreme Court ruling that Alabama's map is now invalid and that a federal court one way or the other is going to either order Alabama's legislature to redraw it in a way that's compliant or enact a remedial plan of its own. Alabama's filing deadline for its primary is not until November. There's an even uh, longer time period in Louisiana. The filing deadline is not until next August. So we are likely to see both those maps change in time for 2024. It could be trickier in several other states where cases aren't as far along. It does seem rather significant, even though we're talking about a small number of states and potentially races, but the House is decided by very close margins. Republicans right now have just a four-seat majority. This this ruling could potentially have a major impact on how the House is configured. You're absolutely right. And redistricting is destiny in an era of highly polarized voting. They're pretty well sorted on the map. And Republicans thought they had an insurance policy heading into 2024 because of their new majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court, allowing them to pad their margin and draw more advantageous districts there. This not only offsets that, but also could impact what Republicans decide to draw in North Carolina because they might be more uh, risk averse now. Then you also consider that Democrats could take advantage of the new judicial reality in the state courts of New York and potentially redraw that map in their favor. And all of a sudden, there's potential for redistricting to benefit Democrats heading into 2024. That's the opposite of what we thought a couple months ago. You previously wrote about these types of cases that the Supreme Court, quote, has struggled much like trying to define obscenity to strike a balance between minority voting rights and sane looking maps. It does still seem like getting race right in representation is a uniquely difficult task. This is the age old question that courts have wrestled with for half a century. Uh, how do you achieve one person, one vote at the same time you assure uh, fair representation for disparate groups when those groups might not 
neatly live together on a map. And it, it sometimes requires rather unorthodox lines that look like abstract art to achieve a majority minority district. And so striking that balance is something that courts may never fully resolve. That's David Wasserman with the Cook Political Report. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Saudi Arabia had quite the week in the international spotlight. There was the merger by the Saudi-backed Golf League Live with the PGA, America's Professional Golf Association. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in the kingdom for an anti-terrorism conference. Last year, the Biden administration had threatened to reevaluate relations with Saudi Arabia. But Blinken stressed close ties and tiptoed around human rights concerns, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. To human rights activists, Secretary Blinken's trip to Saudi Arabia was not a good look. Well, I feel so disappointed, to be honest. That's Abdullah Alouda, the Saudi director of the Freedom Initiative, a U.S.-based nonprofit that advocates for prisoners wrongfully held in the Middle East. I mean, you have asked Blinken, for example, to meet with civil society leaders, Saudi civil society leaders outside who can speak about human rights and democratic values, but they never did. And then they went uh, over there and met with just like uh, people who worked for MBS and talk about Vision 2030. That's the modernization plan of Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's crown prince and de facto leader. Secretary Blinken did meet some prominent women, but Aluda says they were all supporters of the prince's plans. And the problem is not Vision 2030. The problem is tyranny over there is oppression. He's working on cases involving Saudi Americans jailed for what they write on Twitter or U.S.-based activists whose family members are under threat back home in Saudi Arabia. And the cases are increasing. Secretary Blinken had a full agenda in Saudi Arabia trying to get help on peace efforts in Yemen and Sudan. He says he did raise some specific human rights concerns and believes it's in Saudi Arabia's interest to improve its record. In our judgment, Vision 2030, as this initiative is called, will be a much more successful effort if Saudi Arabia is the most attractive place possible for people around the world to come to. And so I think it's on its own merits and in Saudi Arabia's interests to continue to pursue this modernization, including the expansion of human rights. But speaking with Blinken right next to him, Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan made clear that his country doesn't like to be lectured. We are always open to having a dialogue with our friends, but we don't respond to pressure. When we do anything, we do it in our own interests. And I don't think that anybody believes that pressure is useful or helpful. One former Biden administration official, Tess McHenry, says the U.S. shouldn't be fooled by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who the U.S. believes was behind the killing of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. MBS is clearly engaging in these modernization efforts in order to not look like a brutal dictator, but he's not going to make any reforms to the structure of Saudi society or the status of the human rights of women or marginalized groups or anyone else in Saudi Arabia if it threatens his power. And she says he's taking his country in a different direction from the Biden administration on the world stage. They are going to engage with Russia and China regardless of what the United States does. And I think that the Biden administration has not yet woken up to that reality. McEnry of the Project on Middle East Democracy says she thinks the Biden administration is too quick to give the Saudis a pass in exchange for help it might not ever get, like keeping oil prices low. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington.
As the Justice Department charged Donald Trump with allegedly mishandling classified documents, Georgia State Republicans prepared to host the former president at their annual convention. NPR's Lisa Hagan brings us these reactions from the convention floor in Columbus, Georgia. I think they're really just out to get him. I mean, it just seems like attack, 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 attack. Arthur Hampton is manning the John Birch Society booth at the convention the ultra-right-wing anti-communist group born of the 1950s Red Scare is notorious for trafficking in conspiracy theories, the kinds born from both real investigations and from political legend. And then when you got blatant evidence of Hunter Biden's laptop and all the, um, the Clintons running around suiciding people and nothing's being done about that at all, it's, it's a witch hunt's what it is. Hampton sees Trump's latest indictment as just more proof of a corrupt, deep state plot. But it's not just at the Bircher booth where people feel this way. Rocky Fox is a fairly new delegate from just west of Athens, Georgia. He's wearing a baseball cap that reads, defund the FBI. You're going to have to strip it down several layers from the top all the way down to a, if you can find a functional layer. I don't think the FBI's got one. They're, they're totally corrupt all the way through. This current indictment is just one of the outstanding investigations facing Trump. While some are at the federal level, others are local, like here in Georgia, where the former president is being investigated for his efforts to overturn the 2020 elections. Many of the former president's biggest supporters here are resentful of the current governor and secretary of state they think didn't do enough to help Trump win the last election. Right now, though, the focus is on the Department of Justice. We've moved to a crazy world. That's Mike Welsh. He's shaking hands in the convention center lobby, asking delegates to re-elect him as Republican Party secretary. He says the Democrats won't always be in the White House, in control of the DOJ, and they need to remember that. Because once you start going down a slippery slope, it's hard to get back because the party in power will one day not be the party in power, no matter how hard you try. So. Everybody needs to be careful with what you wish for. Maria Shoemaker is with the Georgia Federation of Republican Women. She says it's time to move on from the past. I think they just needed to leave him alone. I mean, he's not the president. Biden's the president. But it's like they're still going after him. Shoemaker likes Trump, but she's open to other presidential candidates' messages as well. Her biggest worry is these indictments making it harder to unify the party. From Columbus, Georgia, I'm Lisa Hagan, NPR News. Poet and community activist Aja Monet's debut album is out. Joy is the will. It's the dimple that has endured. The album, when poems do what they do, mixes spoken word scenes and jazz. Hopscotch, double dutch, a fierce gaze, the side eye, the shade, the side. NPR Music's Sheldon Pierce on what makes the album so potent and groovy. Poetry and music in the Black American tradition are born of the same soul and sort of share a same lineage in that that crossover is super organic. That's tomorrow on All Things Considered. Hums in harmony is the blues is a song in a cotton field of central bookings on a crowded subway. Joy is a song anywhere. Joy bees in the trap. Is a dilla beat in the Middle East is fly as finger licking good as pastelas with black beans or a patty. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There are certain life choices that people feel entitled to grill strangers about. One of them is the choice not to have children. 
In 2021, Pew Research Center came out with a survey showing that a growing share of childless adults in the U.S. don't ever expect to have kids. Angela L. Harris, who has made that choice herself, says when people find out you're child-free... It seems like, you know, we have three heads. And they'll say all kinds of things, ranging from well-intentioned to nosy to cruel. NPR's Life Kit reported on how to build a life when you don't have kids in a recent episode. And host Marielle Segura talked to some child-free people about how and when they respond to those comments. Angela L. Harris runs an online community called No Bibs Burps Bottles for Black women who are child-free. And she's heard comments like, You'll never know true love until you have children. If she responds to stuff like that, she says, Look, I've been in love. And there are different forms of love, right? I love my parents. I love my siblings. And so I don't have to bring a child into the world to know what true love is. Another comment she's gotten, come on, every woman wants children. Well, I'm I'm living proof that not every woman wants a child. Then there's the old, but if you don't have kids, you know you're going to die alone, right? There are nursing homes full of lonely parents who have five, six, seven kids, and their kids are not visiting them. I also don't think that a person should have kids with the expectation that those kids that they brought into the world will take care of them. As you can see, there are plenty of things you can say when people come at you with these kinds of comments. But the bigger point here is, this is your life. You are entitled to be child-free and to communicate that whenever and however you want. Maybe in some instances, you'll want to take a warmer approach because you know the person means well. Like when your mom says, when are you going to give us grandchildren? I think there's a playful and joking way in which you can respond, right? Mom, are you going to take care of these kids when I have them? Okay, I didn't think so. But also when it's the third time she said that this month, you might decide to sit down with your mom and say, hey, you know, it feels like you're not hearing me or respecting my choice. You can also tell people you don't want kids, or not. And you can explain your reasons, or not. Carrie Carbonaro is child-free by choice. She was always waiting for the urge to have kids to kick in. You know, you think of that movie, you know, My uh, my Cousin Vinny. My biological clock is ticking like this. My biological clock is ticking. And I'm like, when is my biological clock going to start running? It never did. And at some point, after she got together with her now husband, his teenage son asked her, I don't understand it. You're like such an amazing person. And why wouldn't you have children? I I just, he could not wrap his head around it. The question seemed to be coming from a place of love and curiosity, and she didn't mind answering. We asked listeners for their responses to the question, why don't you have kids? Some of our favorites. Oh, we can't. Our cats are allergic. I prefer to borrow the children of others, spoil them, and then send them home. And I can't imagine why you'd ask such a personal question. Which, by the way, is a great response to a lot of things. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. For more tips on living child-free, go to npr.org slash lifekit. This is NPR News. I'm Susan Levy. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. 
Coming up at 6, it's the Moth Radio Hour. And calling all WBUR members now, join us on Thursday, June 15th for a free trivia night at City Space. Test your knowledge of the news, Boston and beyond. Details are at WBUR.org slash events. 62 degrees at 539. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, presenting the first American production of the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play. This marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. And Long Hill and Beverly and Stevens Coolidge in North Andover revitalized North Shore Public Gardens and Historic Homes. Information at thetrustees.org slash gardens dash revitalized. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The man known as the Unabomber, who was responsible for a 17-year-long bombing spree that left three people dead and nearly a dozen injured, has died. Ted Kaczynski died in the Federal Prison Medical Center in North Carolina. He was 81. Officials in Quebec are appealing for international help in fighting wildfires as more than 140 fires burn in the province, about half of them out of control. Smoke from Canadian fires led to air quality alerts in the northeastern U.S. this week. And in soccer, Manchester City defeated Milan 1 to nothing today to win the European Championship for the first time. City is the second English club to win Premier League, FA Cup and Champions League titles in the same season. Joining Manchester United. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Subaru and its retailers, partnering with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society this June to give blankets and messages of hope to patients facing cancer. Learn more at Subaru.com care. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Susan Davis. Every single year, about 600,000 people are reported missing in America. That number comes from the National Missing and Unidentified Persons database. In 2022, roughly 34,000 of those reported actively missing were people of color. But missing people of color often don't get the same kind of intense media attention as certain cases of missing white people. My colleague Juana Summers takes it from here. No one has heard from missing 25-year-old Jelani Day in more than a week now, and his family is still searching for answers. Today marks six years since Keisha Jacobs disappeared in Richmond. She was just 21 years old at the time. Today, These are just some of the people of color who have gone missing over the last few years. Ashley Loring, who also goes by Ashley Heavy Runner, was last seen in Browning on June 8, 2017. The Bureau of India Today marks three years since five-year-old Dulce Maria Alaves disappeared from a New Jersey park. And tonight, the question remains, where is Dulce? Today marks nine years since an eight-year-old girl went missing in D.C. The search for Relisha Rudd hasn't And some of them are still missing. You might be hearing their names for the first time because their cases have not received as much national media coverage as cases involving missing white women and children. 
Lacey Peterson. On the night before Christmas, she was gone. Please, please, please let her go. Nearly two decades later, we have new developments in the Natalie Holloway case. The prime suspect. The desperate search for Gabby Petito, the 22-year-old who vanished on a cross-country trip with her boyfriend. Police now. Yeah, it seems the nation is searching for Gabby Petito, but her boyfriend. Brian Why not the same media attention when people of color go missing? Well, the answer actually has a name: missing white woman syndrome. That phrase was coined by the journalist Gwen Eiffel, who died back in 2016. It refers to the media's fascination with covering missing or otherwise endangered white women and the media's seeming disinterest in covering the disappearances of people of color. If there's a missing white woman, we're going to cover that every day. There are various studies that back up the notion that people of color who go missing don't get featured in the news as much. The Columbia Journalism Review went through 3,600 stories from U.S. news outlets that featured missing people in 2021. They found that if a black man went missing in St. Louis, for instance, there would be around a dozen news stories about him. But a young white woman from the same place would attract 10 times the media coverage. The amount of media attention that a missing person's case gets can affect what happens with that case and the person at the heart of it. The lack of media coverage for people of color often means their loved ones struggle not only to get news coverage for the case, but also police resources dedicated to finding them. David Robinson II knows what it's like to have to fight for the attention of the media, the police, and the public in the hope of finding his son. Media wasn't really at the time reaching back out. Uh, so I had to keep pressing and pressing. David's son, 24-year-old Daniel Robinson, went missing just a few months before Gabby Petito. He was last seen leaving a job site in Buckeye, Arizona on June 23, 2021. Daniel had moved to Arizona for a job as a field geologist after he graduated from college. At the time that he went missing, he was driving a blue-gray Jeep Renegade. According to the Buckeye Police Department, his damaged Jeep was found in a desert ravine on July 19th, a little less than a month after he was last seen. Police said that his clothes, his cell phone, wallet, and keys were found at the scene, and that foul play was not suspected given the state of his car. Nearly two years later, Daniel Robinson is still missing. We are not naive to believe that every missing person's case will get national media coverage. That's Natalie Wilson, co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation. It's a nonprofit dedicated to bringing attention to the cases of missing persons of color, like David's son, Daniel. I recently spoke with both David Robinson II and Natalie Wilson. David, I want to start with you. First of all, I'm just so sorry to hear about your son, but I, I want to learn more about him. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about Daniel as a person? Yes, uh, Daniel, he's the youngest of his uh, three other siblings. He's got a twin sister and an older brother. Uh, he's missing his right hand growing up with that. Some may call it a disability. Daniel did things differently to show that it's not for instance, Daniel taught himself how to play a French horn. You know, he taught himself how to play the trumpet. Uh, he also, um, growing up, decided to get into geology. Once he graduated from high school, going to the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina, not only did he graduate in geology, he, but he excelled. He uh, graduated with honors. 
He's also a founder for his local fraternity. So the thing is, what I'm saying for Dr. Daniel, he's a person that's a go-getter. He set his mind to something. He actually do it. At the same time, his personality defines him. His friendly atmosphere, he brings people together. He has tons of friends. He brings the family together. Uh, anytime there's conflict, he's right there. So that's Daniel. Hmm. And as we mentioned, Daniel's been missing since 2021. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened and when you found out that he was missing? First thing we're thinking, uh, you need to go to check his apartment to make sure he's not there, you know, or he just not answering his phone, uh, that type of stuff. And, and we was able to rule out that uh, he wasn't not answering his phone. So, of course, the next step was to try to get uh, law enforcement to do a welfare check. So started off that way. Things progressed from that point, just knowing my son his patterns. He wouldn't go six hours. I realized it was over six hours at the time. He wouldn't go that long without letting his family, friends, someone know what he's doing that day. So that was very suspicious to us. From that point, uh, that's when I was able to try to reach out to law enforcement in Arizona. Natalie, I want to bring you in here. You are the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation. What brought you to this work? Um, so the inspiration behind the Black Missing Foundation is a young lady who disappeared from Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, my sister-in-law, who has partnered with me in this organization and founding this organization, um, we read how her family really struggled to get national media coverage. A year later, Natalie Holloway disappeared, and I'm sure that your readers, just saying her name alone, they know her face and her story. So we you know, we weren't sure if this is an issue affecting our communities because we don't see individuals that look like us making the news cycle um, when we disappear. We found that 30% of all persons missing were of color, um, primarily black males, and we decided why not us? And we founded the organization 15 years ago. And what keeps us going or motivates us to keep going are these families that are desperately searching for their missing loved ones and they have no avenue to turn to. So we're using our expertise. You just brought up a really stunning statistic. The high share of people who go missing that are people of color compared to the U.S. population. Can you tell us why people of color and particularly Black people and Black men, as you point out, Natalie, make up such a large share of those who go missing? We're finding that people are disappearing for a number of reasons. One, sex trafficking, especially during the pandemic, we have seen an uptick in those cases of our children being online and communicating with individuals that they think are their age, they're meeting up with them. So sex trafficking is an issue that is happening in our communities. It's not just happening abroad. Mental health challenges, domestic violence against women. And we're also seeing our senior population wandering away from their home because of, you know, dementia or Alzheimer's. But, you know, we also started the organization because missing people of color were just under the radar. They're not getting the same level of media coverage or law enforcement resources. Nine out of the 10 cases that we receive when there's a missing minor, law enforcement tend to classify that child as a runaway. So if they're classified as a runaway, they do not receive the Amber Alert and they definitely don't receive any type of media coverage at all. And as a result, they remain missing 
four times longer than any other group. So what we're trying to do is to even the playing field. We're not asking for anything special. We just want to make sure that our missing our household names too. I mean, I want to ask you both about this point. Natalie Holloway, who disappeared back in 2005, but is still a household name. The more recent case of Gabby Petito. These are stories that riveted the nation that got primetime coverage. There were news stories on programs, including NPR, about those cases. What do you think the role of the media is here? I mean, why do you think cases like those get such a different treatment than cases like Daniel's? What we're finding as we're speaking to individuals or reporters at news stations, there are no policies in place to determine who gets coverage. So if you get two calls at a a news station, who decides who gets that coverage? And it's typically a news editor. It's a middle-aged white man and may not see the value in telling the story of that missing individual from a marginalized community. So we have to also change the narrative that these are our missing mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers. Let's humanize these missing individuals. David, I want to ask you about your experience in navigating that media ecosystem as you advocated for help for finding your son, Daniel. What was that like for you? And what do you think about the way that Black men, Black people who go missing are treated compared to their white counterparts? My experience uh, trying to get my son name uh, to simply get his name out there is is, is very hard. Um, It took me three months just to get local uh, news organization to... Three uh, months? Yes, yes. Three months to just to get his story out there. I reached out to the news stations, um, the radio stations, trying everything I can day and night, up day and night, writing letters just to get coverage. It, it, It was very difficult. What were the kinds of things you heard when you were reaching out to reporters or news stations to try to get his name and his case and, frankly, his face out there? What did they say to you? Well, you know, uh, one of the biggest problems is my son, he's an adult to many. Uh, To me, he's a child. Uh, He's my son. And I think what happens when I talk to a lot of reporters, I'm often hearing things like he's an adult. Buckeye Police Department says he's a grown man. Maybe he just left and want to be away. Uh, so those are things that are contradictory to the things that I know about my son. And uh, so those problem matters. Just trying to make sure people understood that uh, Daniel didn't come from a place where uh, he needed to just go disappear or he wanted to be away from his family. I mean, your story is unfortunately one that is all too common across this country, particularly when we're talking about missing people of color. I'm curious to both of you, how do we make this experience better so that fewer people of color who go missing stay missing so that their families have the resources they need. I mean, we have amber alerts for missing children. There are silver alerts for missing elders that we get on our phones. Should there be a similar system for missing people? There should be an alert system, a public communication alert system for people of color. But I will say that right now there are two alert systems, one for minors and one for seniors. And most people who are reported missing don't fall into that category. So the media and social media platforms are not being alerted 
of their disappearance. And Minnesota Representative Ruth Richardson had um, legislation passed so that Black women and girls can be protected. And now California is also trying to pass legislation to enhance or improve the public communications alert system with an ebony alert. But I also want to add, and David can you know, expound on this a bit, he had to raise funds to get the basic resources, and we assisted him with this, to help find his son, you know, whether it was drones or the search party. And typically, law enforcement with taxpayer dollars would help with that search. But David, and we see this all the time with families, they have to raise funds on their own to help find their missing loved one. David, anything you want to add there? Uh, yes, it, it was just painful uh, just hearing that, um, and it's true. One of the things I relied on is law enforcement to, um, my vision was them walking side by side with me um, to search for my son. I uh, was able to do over 48 weeks of searches, and um, uh, it, you know, uh, uh, it, was, it was really rough not having law enforcement's presence there, um, having to, I'm a person that has a lot of pride, so I had to go out to the community to ask for funding, uh, just to keep searches going, just to uh, get out flyers and things like that. And I, I thank the Black and Missing Foundation for their help. And, but I was looking for law enforcement to do so. And uh, it, it's very painful to literally be a grown man and, and, and beg law enforcement to help and the help don't ever come. David, it'll be two years this month since Daniel went missing. What you're describing sounds agonizing for any parent. My heart really breaks for you. I, I have to ask you, what keeps you going after all this time? How do you keep doing this? Well, the only thing we have, I have is God. Um, God, he's, he's the strength of my life, of course. Um, my love for my son. Uh, he's my youngest son. Uh, my son don't give up on anything. I'm definitely not giving up on him. I also rely on my military training. Uh, we're trained to never leave a fallen comrade, never leave anyone behind. My son is Daniel, Daniel Robinson. I'm definitely not leaving him behind. I've learned to make finding my son my mission, my life mission. You know, he, he put the mission first and that's what I'm doing. So uh, to keep going, I try to make sure I just focus on everything, focus on everything that I've learned and try to make sure I stay focused on finding my son and, and do that without fail.